Normally, when I introduce one of our guests, I give a fast rundown of their prominent credits. But for today's guest, I'll list only one, since for the past 35 years, he has been executive producer of the Manhattan Theater Club, producing with his partner, artistic director Lynn Meadow, over 380 American and world premieres. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm pleased to welcome Barry Grove. Thank you for asking me to join you today. Well, it's it's remarkable. I mean, we'll reveal early in in the continuum of your career at Manhattan Theater Club, I had a brief eight months working for you, had no idea at the time the perspective of where I was in the life of Manhattan Theater Club and that it was still relatively early. Did you, in your wildest dreams, when you went to work in 1975 at Manhattan Theater Club, think it was going to be a 35-year-plus journey? Absolutely not. I was just 23 when I joined Lynn. I had been working in the theater for a few years because I started while I was in college. But I thought, okay, so this is the next two or three years. And each time either a job opportunity came up or the thought of trying to do something slightly different came up, I found that I could usually find a way to help the Manhattan Theater Club grow into that place that I wanted to go to, too. And so I don't think I could have stayed anywhere for 35 years doing the same thing. But in in, in helping uh, grow and shape the evolution of the institution, it's always been different. And in that sense, maybe you could sort of see a little bit farther down the road than the present. Uh, hopefully, that was part of my job to kind of see a little bit down the road. But no, we wouldn't have known that this was where we were going to be. Well, let's talk a little about that continuing growth. When you got to MTC, the organization was five years old. Lynn had been there for three years. What did you find? What was – Well, the budget at the time was around $200,000. It was an off-off Broadway theater. Um, it was on East 73rd Street in an old Czech social hall called the Sokol Hall. And a good bit of that $200,000 was indeed taken up by the rent and some pretty basic stuff. So there wasn't a lot of room for much more than that. But there was a staff of I think eight or nine maybe and everyone was doing everything, literally taking turns tearing tickets at night, um, being the house manager in the box office. Uh, treasurer. And so there were some real challenges just to kind of sort things into a more perhaps orderly fashion. On the other hand, Lynn had already been there for a couple of years, as you suggest. The hardest work of dreaming the first dream and starting the organization, creating the beginnings of a board and getting from deficit to just about break even on that tiny little budget had been accomplished. So I was lucky. I arrived and the first challenges were trying to figure out how to make it grow. When you got there, I am under the impression that Lynn was unbelievably prolific. There was a lot of production going on in terms of number of shows. Before I was there, she did a year in which they did like I think 60 shows or something in which it was sort of here's a room, here's $25, you know, go to it. And mind you, there was oversight from her I think artistically to some degree but it was about getting a huge volume of work out there. We were functioning under what's now long gone but a, something called the showcase code with equity that only allowed you to do 12 performances, charge $2.50, which was the prevailing off-off-Broadway price at the time, and, and be in 99 seats. 
And if you do the math on that, it's a $3,000 total gross on the run. So things had to obviously be modest. But we were still doing in my first season 5, 10, I don't know, 15, 20 things plus a poetry and literature series on Monday nights. We had a cabaret that was doing early and late night stuff. Over time, over those next five to ten years, we began to reduce the numbers and put more focus and time and energy into them. But the very first two shows when I got there, Lynn was directing the young Jerry Zachs in Golden Boy in what was the main stage, a 99-seat space. And we had a brand new play called Seamarks by a man named Gardner McKay, um, which went on to Theater in America on television. And I took a look at the work they were doing and I was just amazed by it. I had come from some a brief amount of time in the commercial theater and some time at the O'Neill Center Playwrights Conference. And I thought the quality of the work and the amount of effort and professionalism that's going into this just demands that it have longer runs than this. And so I began right away to petition equity to allow us to increase the runs and the very next season, we took over 150-seat space, had 24 performances and a $4 ticket price and began to pay actors some compensation in the bargain. And from then on, I think there's been a desire to have the work reach as large an audience as it could sustain. And in the balance, as you went for more performances, larger theater – the number of productions presumably was Came dropping as right. those went up. Exactly right. So and, and reducing the amount of time – this 150-seat theater was in that building, but we couldn't afford to work at it because we couldn't pay off-Broadway salaries yet. And so in the earliest years, that space was being rented out. And so as we began to take back our own space and use it ourselves, you're absolutely right. The numbers came down, but the number of performances increased. Now, staying just with the growth – You've talked about what happened as you came in in 75. In 1984 was when the company moved into the basement at City Center right. and created what you now refer to as stage one right. at City Center. That well, was we the year the I low, was around. Right. We would call the lower level, not okay. the basement. Yes. <laughs> well, there were parts of it that were still very you're, much basement. What you, called there, stage, right. what you called stage two now was, right. was definitely a basement. For sure. So from 85 – you were worked first just in stage one. When did stage two get created? A year later. No, it was that quick. We had had a grant from the city to try and acquire the original space we were in. And after a, a lot of effort and a, ultimately a failed attempt, the owners decided they wanted to hold on to the property. We moved to city center and we knew that – MTC was always about multiple stages and work happening at different sizes and different venues. And there was also the wonder of just the dynamism of one playing off another. So for example, back in that first space, I'm going backwards just a bit, Ain't Misbehaven was happening in one space, but statements after an arrest under the Immorality Act, a very strong anti-apartheid play by Athel Fugard. By Athel Fugard was having its American premiere in another space. And uh, Red Fox Second Hanging, Apple Shop's work of folk storytelling was happening in yet a third place. Hmm. So the notion we wanted to get back right away and it just took I think a year and a half to then convince the city to reappropriate those funds to city center and allow us to use them to create the second stage. 
I think it opened in like 86. And then what year was it when you moved to then the Biltmore, now the Samuel Friedman? We spent 10 years looking for a space. It was a long search to find a space we could afford. And we were chasing prices because the, the, the beginnings of the reclamation of the Times Square area had happened and prices were beginning to go up. So we broke ground in 2001, less than three months after 9-11, which was – an uncertain time to be undertaking a project like this and it opened in the fall of 03. So you'd been looking since 1991? Yes. So it was only seven years after you'd moved into city center. You were By already – By then I was sure that again the amount of audience that was coming to those plays was growing in excess of what we could manage to accommodate and we began to self-produce transfers off Broadway of – the early McNally work, early John Shanley and Margulies, plays like Lips Together, Lisbon Traviata, Four Dogs and a Bone, Sight Unseen. And those had begun to expand our audience into a more open-ended form, not in commercial runs but in extended runs. And then um, it, it was clear that if we were going to be a major institution of the ilk of those in other parts of the country, we weren't going to be able to sustain it with only a 300-seat auditorium. And mm. so you know, in Chicago, that's called the Goodman. In, in LA, it's called the Taper. In New York, it's called Broadway, which is to say we didn't set out particularly just to go to Broadway but rather to have a larger venue in which everything flowed from that, the ability to pay increased compensation, ultimately recognition for the artists for their work in the Tony Awards. But first and foremost, the ability to to allow a larger audience to see the work that Lynn and her colleagues were presenting, producing. Now, at this point, you're producing a season at the Freedman. Right. You are still producing a season in Stage One, Stage Two at City Center. Now you're renting out. Yes, hopefully a short time. In the downturn of 2008, we can call it a crash probably, certainly a deep recession. Unlike the ones, you know, over my 40-year career we had seen before because it wasn't what, what the economists call a V-bounce, meaning it didn't come back. It's got a long tail on it and it's slow returning, although it is moving forward now. It was clear that MTC had to reduce its expenses and we took about a $2 million reduction. Lynn and I took salary cuts. We froze other people's salaries. We reduced staff. We did all the things that other nonprofit institutions in New York and across the country were doing. And one of them was to say we can't afford the overhead of all of this real estate right now. So we actually didn't reduce artistic spending. We, we were doing uh, two shows at that point in stage one and two in stage two. Um, and we took all of the money from the two stage two shows and made a three play stage one season. So mm. hard for the listener maybe to follow the math. But what that meant was we were only reducing from seven plays to six plays. But it reduced the overhead substantially by stepping temporarily out of that space. And as a win-win, um, the Pearl Theater Company had lost its lease at St. Mark's Playhouse and was looking for a space. And so uh, indeed, we've sublet it to them. And I would hope that was certainly within the next two years. I can't promise within the next year. But, but soon, we would like to add it back at least some if not all of the time. Because a 150-seat flexible space represents the place 
where artists should have their beginnings with the Manhattan Theater Club even as great and accomplished artists are being presented on Broadway. There should be a whole new generation coming in, almost off-off-Broadway, if you will. Well, it's been interesting. I know we're talking primarily about real estate at the moment, but the larger institutions like yourself, the Roundabout, Lincoln Center, they have had larger spaces and have worked to create smaller ones. You've grown from smaller spaces that you've retained as you've grown and now have to get a little back to it. But, absolutely. but there's absolutely – everybody seems to perceive that need for a space where you can do it simpler and not have as much at stake, I guess. That's right. And you know, our logo, which obviously you can't see on the radio, the MTC is in sort of three different size boxes. And subtle as it is, it's really meant to suggest off-off-Broadway, off-Broadway and on-Broadway, these three mm. different size venues that allow you to serve the artist at whatever size the work uh, wants to be at rather than being forced to one place or the other. Mm. Well, let's jump back because you spoke very briefly of where you came from and let's let's talk about this. You're from Madison, Connecticut. Were you somebody who grew up going to the Schubert in New Haven? And I, I was. My dad was a terrific man and gave me a great many things but he didn't have a strong love of the arts. My mother had a passion for it and so I was her date from a very early age and we went to Woolsey Hall, the classical concert hall at Yale in New Haven. We went to the old Schubert. Particularly, we went to Stratford, Connecticut to see Shakespeare classics. The old American Shakespeare That's Theater, right. which has been defunct now for right, many years. But Michael Kahn was directing many things there. Brian Bedford was often acting there. Moses Gunn. So I got a real classical education and occasionally we would come into New York more to the opera. My mother adored the opera and so we went to the old Met once or twice. But yes, I started you know, first as her date and then I was 16 and I got my driver's license and I got my first subscription in my own right to one of Arvin Brown's first years at the Long Wharf in New Haven. Okay, uh, we're 1969 That's because right. Arvin took over in the third year That's of right. Long Wharf. That's right. And 69 was the year I had graduated from high school. So that year I was driving to New Haven to see all of Arvin's work. And, and I guess without realizing it, you know, sort of soaking into my bones the, um, the, the new play idea and the regional theater idea. Hmm. So when you went to school up at Dartmouth, yeah. um, did you study theater? Was theater a goal already at that no, point? No, I thought and indeed my father would have hoped, I think, that you know I was going to go into a traditional career and I had been strong in math and science as well as English type subjects at high school and so I thought I was on a pre-med, pre-engineering track the beginning of my freshman year. But I needed a break because I – while I had done well in high school, I was surrounded by brilliant people at Dartmouth. So I, I wandered over to the um, Arts Center on Activities Night originally to build scenery and to just kind of help out and I got cast in the lead of the freshman play. I was Benito Serino in the play oh. and by that spring, I had changed my major to theater. I was completely hooked. And Errol Hill, who was a playwright, African um, – Jamaican actually, um, a Trinidadian uh, scholar of, of uh, black drama, encouraged an application that was stuck on the wall my freshman year to someplace called the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center's first ever semester of the National Theater Institute. 
So in the fall of 1970, just 40 years ago, I got a small additional grant from uh, I think the Rotary Foundation in Madison and I went off to the O'Neill and spent that semester with people like Ted Chapin was in that first class, now the chairman of the wing and head of the Rodgers and Hammerstein, Gordon Clapp, the actor. And we were immersed in the theater full time and I uh, and I loved it and I came home expecting to go back at 19 to uh, college and the phone rang over the Christmas holidays and it was Jay Rinelli, the then director of the series, and he said, how would you like to go to New York and assist on a Broadway show? And I thought, what could be better? But I obviously had to get permission from many people. So I said, how long do I have to decide? And he said, you have to be in rehearsal tomorrow. The reason we're calling you is someone had to cancel at the last minute. So with no permission from the deans and Unfortunately, my dad was sick at the time and my mom had her hands full and only probably because she had her hands full did I talk my way into letting – having them let me do this. And I arrived at the rehearsal studios in January 40 years ago with my suitcase not knowing where I was going to sleep that night. And by midday that day, I was at Sardi's with Mel Bernhardt who I was there to assist um, director and Paul Zindel who had just won the Pulitzer Prize for Marigolds. And Julie Harris and Estelle Parsons. What was the show? And Miss Reardon Drinks a Little with huh. Nancy Marchand and Bill Macy. And My so gosh. There I was. Uh, we did a, an old-fashioned traditional um, tryout. So it was a week in New Haven. There I was back to New Haven, uh, two weeks in Washington and two weeks in Boston before coming into New York. Now – Ted Chapin kept a diary when he did that while he was still in college. Is is there a hidden diary? Uh, no. And ironically, we both left that first semester and by the time I got to Boston, we were across the street from each other. Huh. He was working on Follies and I was working on Reardon. Um, he was he was the author. I have the I have the story, I guess, in my head and a little bit of it here on the radio. But um, that was how we both began those careers. Hmm. So that you assisted Melvin up through presumably the show's New York opening right. and then back to school again? He offered me a full-time job at that point and I turned it down to go back to school. Hmm. And when I got back to school, the phone rang again and it was the O'Neill saying, come up and stage manage at the National Playwrights Conference that summer and that's how I got my equity card. And that was only a month-long engagement. So the phone rang again and it was uh, Melvin saying, we're going to do the national tour and it butts right up against the conference. Can you come to New York and assist me on the national tour, which was going to open at the Mechanic in Baltimore? So I did that and then I – the only year I actually spent my whole year at college was my junior year. Wow. The following summer, the phone rang again and Reardon was being done in stock and they offered me the job of being the advance director on the stock tour with Sandy Dennis. So that was that summer. And then I got an independent fellowship to direct my senior year and um, the phone rang again and this time the O'Neill was calling to say that Tina Packer was launching Shakespeare and Company as an offshoot of the Lambda program um, in London and they were going to have six months studying and rehearsing three Shakespeare's at the RSC in Stratford-on-Avon and then a six-month U.S. tour beginning at the O'Neill and ending up at uh, an off-Broadway venue in New York. And they needed somebody to be the American stage manager who would be the ASM to the British stage manager in London and then vice versa in the U.S. So I directed my senior fellowship program. 
play. Uh, I left town the next day and I spent the last half of my senior year studying and rehearsing at the RSC. So this begs an obvious question. We have heard about your undoubtedly definitive performance as Benito Serino. We have <laughs> bad heard about actor, you. Bad we, have, actor. we have heard about you assistant directing, directing, stage managing, all of these things. Did you know at that time what you ultimately wanted to do or was it simply these were jobs in theater so you'd take them? It was more these were jobs in theater so I I thought I wanted to be a director and so the assistant director and stage manager jobs were logical choices. Um, when I was at the National Theater Institute, we did a three-week, one-night stand bus and truck tour to all the different stops and I acted in that tour and they said, we need somebody to be the company manager and I had no idea what that job was and I said, well, I'll do it. And so that was my first company management job. And then when I finished the RSC thing in New York, I had proposed to my wife who I had met at the O'Neill and needed a job because I was getting married and um, Jay Rinelli by then had moved over to the University of Rhode Island to found a professional program as an offshoot of the Playwrights Conference. Um, and so where they had done only two student plays before, they were going to do a five-play student season and a five-play equity season of plays by Jeff Wanchell and Lee Kalsheim and, and – Who were all people who had been who, done at, at the O'Neill in the Playwrights right. Conference Correct. in those years. And they had, again, somebody drop out of the faculty and so newly graduated from Dartmouth at 21, um, I got a faculty appointment and – the concurrent appointment to be the general manager of that program. Called the New Repertory Project? Project. <laughs> you have amazing research capabilities. <laughs> I haven't, haven't thought of that name in a long time. But yeah, and it gave me the ability to learn management because I had to do everything, create a subscription season where there hadn't been one, negotiate equity contracts where there hadn't been a relationship. The one thing I didn't have to do, of course, the hardest thing of all other than be the brilliant inspiration artistically that Lynn can be was raise the money because they had a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation already in place. Hmm. So it gave me two years to learn management without having to fundraise. So if you were on faculty, were you actually teaching? I was. What were you teaching? I was teaching um, stage management, uh, intro to theater history, um, and I was teaching night school theater appreciation in Newport and Providence. Wow. At 21. So you did that, if my research is correct, for two seasons. Right. How did you get down to New York? Well, George White, the president of the O'Neill, was on the Manhattan Theater Club's board and Lynn, almost from as soon as she had taken the job, decided she wanted a partner and someone who could really help shape things on the management side. And George White suggested we meet. And so I came to New York at the end of my first year at the O'Neill. And we talked and we talked and I really admired and liked her um, right from the beginning. Um, but I ultimately turned down the opportunity to come because I felt I had only just begun to explore what was going on in Rhode Island and it was just too soon to make another move. We had just moved up there. So she went on and I went on. But a year later, um, it hadn't worked out I guess with the way she was going to go alternatively. And she called me back and said, you know, would you consider it now? And it was 
Um, I had just been offered a promotion from instructor to assistant professor. But by then I had come to realize that if you really cared about the theater and about new work, then New York was the place to come. So at 23, I came to join her at this fledgling theater, we were just saying, with a $200,000 budget. And I started in June of 75. And there's this great irony in that it turned out you'd grown up all of 15 miles from each yes, other. Our birthdays are a week apart and we'd grown up 15 miles from each other, but we had never met until that day in New York <laughs> that George White brought us together. Huh. So now we're back to you've arrived on East 73rd Street. As you said, we've said the balance of, of shows changed. But in terms of for lack of a better word, professionalizing the operation. Mm -hmm. You'd had the two years working with Jay um, in Rhode Island, but you hadn't actually been trained in not-for-profit theater management. There were very few programs, if any, at the time. That's right. Um, So was it complete learning from experience or were there – resources or mentors that you were calling on? Both. Um, It was learning from experience because there wasn't anything else. My father-in-law was an accountant at Price Waterhouse. That was an enormous help because I'd never formally studied business. I'd taken a statistical analysis course at Dartmouth, but that was about as close as it got. From the beginning, there was a board of directors at MTC and they were extraordinarily generous with their time and expertise in a host of different fields. I feel like I got a graduate education and continue to even now from proximity to all of them. Intuitively, I think I realized that we needed to get people to become specialists in each department. So I took everyone there and said, well, you seem to be better at answering the phones. You're the receptionist and you seem to be better at uh, balancing the books. You're the bookkeeper. And by the end of the first year, most of those people who had been doing everything decided they wanted to still be doing everything somewhere, you know, on a kind of Mickey and Judy, let's put on a play level. And so – slowly and I guess kind of without realizing how methodical it was, replaced each of them with somebody who wanted to be each of those jobs. And one of the first things we did was to hire a box office treasurer and then a house manager. And early on, one of the people we hired to be that house manager was a young fellow named John Patrick Shanley, who of course has gone on to a magnificent career as an Oscar winner and a Tony winner and we've been able to produce a host of his shows. But setting aside the John part of the story, just getting someone to do those things didn't mean we were working less hours but we could focus more on what we needed to focus on. They had I think five checkbooks that needed to be balanced and hadn't been balanced in like a year or something. I knew somehow or other that that wasn't going to be – smart for me to just stop and spend weeks and weeks doing that. And I was fortunate. I talked uh, the accountant who was then on our board into lending us someone from their staff. And so we set up a folding card table next door to my desk in a tiny closet of a room. And he spent the summer sitting next to me um, balancing checkbooks while I tried to figure out what else I should do. Hmm. You said, though, both. So were the mentors just the board or were you also reaching out? I mean, this was a time where institutional off-Broadway was growing. We knew everything that happened down in Greenwich Village, but this is the period where Circle Rep was coming into being and things like that. Two or three things happened in that department almost at the same time. Early on, by the end of my first year, 
Equity had decided to promulgate a new showcase code that invoked a, a lot of anger on the part of many people because it really seemed as if it was going to put all these fledgling off off-Broadway theaters out of business. And so quickly, the beginning theaters came together. The Circle Rep, Playwrights, Bob Moss at the beginning of Playwrights, a fellow named Jerry Arrow who was with Marshall Mason at Circle, St. Clements. And we sought advice and counsel from the extraordinary Joseph Papp. So that was one early mentor for sure. As well, we tried to get a contract from the then legendary British agent and um, she was representing David Rudkin at the time. And Did they – Peggy Ramsey? Peggy Ramsey. And they wanted a different kind of contract than MTC had been able to offer. So Lynn went to Joe and said, would you help us? And that play was called Ashes and Joe agreed, almost sight unseen I think, to co-produce it with us. And the deal was um, we would do it first at MTC and then hopefully do it downtown. And so I stayed up all night nervously making my first budget on a piece of paper. There weren't computers then. And we came down to see Bernie Gersten who was then at the public. And As the associate producer. And Bernie wrapped his arms around it and put me at ease instantly. And, hmm. and it was one of the quickest and easiest you know, deals we'd ever made. So that was a help. And then – the very first TCG conference ever was in 1976 on the Yale campus and I went with Lynn and among other people, the now legendary Danny Newman was there giving workshops. The great marketing director who, who created the book in Subscribe Now. now. Yep. And so – and he became a kind of part-time consultant for us for a while. Hmm. And then a little while later, Jed Bernstein, who went on to be later on the executive director of the league and, and now as a producer. But was – Jed was at Ogilvy at the time yep. and we had a board member at American Express and American Express said, we'll get Ogilvy to help do some pro bono work for you. And the young account exec that got assigned to me was Jed Bernstein. So – we were kind of surrounded by the early version of TCG and Lort, I guess. I became, within a year of this group coming together in New York, the second ever president, I think, of the Off-Off-Broadway Alliance, what's now called Art New York. Hmm. And we were ultimately able to negotiate, although people didn't want to call it negotiate at the time. They, equity was wanting to call it discussions. So I guess we finally decided we were discussiating an agreement and a sort of settlement of this conflict off of Broadway. And so I spent I think close to 10 years as uh, president or, or leader in one way or another of the Off-Off-Broadway Alliance and, and was surrounded by colleagues and peers who were as much mentors to me as hopefully I was maybe once in a while to them. I want to tease out something that you mentioned really in passing. The idea that Ashes would premiere – on East 73rd Street between 1st and 2nd Avenues in a not-for-profit setting and then transfer to Astor Place in another not-for-profit setting seems very unusual. And part of that seems to me was made possible because in many ways, MTC was a neighborhood theater when it started. It There weren't tons of theaters in your neighborhood and you served a lot of people from your neighborhood. 
That's is that true? That's absolutely true. We were in – Ashes was in a 150-seat house with the 24 performance run. I can't remember whether we were able to extend it for a week or two or not. Let's say we weren't. So um, – and indeed, MTC was very much an Upper East Side neighborhood theater. Now, today that sounds – may be expensive and elitist. But in those days, the far east side of New York was an ethnic neighborhood for Czechoslovakian community, for the Hungarian community. And so this was a very inexpensive, very affordable local place to go to the theater, much as theaters in the village were you know, in their own right. So we then, in moving downtown, First of all, I think it happened in part because Joe was just extraordinary and he wanted to support Lynn Meadow and I came along for the ride and she had delivered already a great set of reviews and a terrific production with Diane Wiest and Roberta Maxwell, John Tillinger. Um, but in part, he wanted to sort of support that and in part, they then were able to bring real marketing expertise and dollars in a way we didn't. There was a Paul Davis poster. You know, We couldn't have done that. Hmm. The reason I wanted to ask about the neighborhood relationship was because of the year that I worked there, when there was the move to city right. center, one of the the growth pains for the organization was not that you were moving. I mean you weren't moving to another city. It's New right. York. Things are accessible. But there was, there was a lot of concern among the longtime patrons that Manhattan Theater Club was leaving them. The main stage yes. was going elsewhere and 73rd between 1st and 2nd was a world away from 55th between 6th and 7th. You're totally right, Howard. I mean when you're – think of it as sort of the, in, a, in a restaurant metaphor. When you're going out to your neighborhood restaurant, you fall out the door in your blue jeans or your comfortable clothes. You know, It's inexpensive. You don't have to dress up. You aren't organizing. It's last minute. When we moved to city center, we were moving to the northern edge of the Times Square Entertainment District. We lost half the subscribers in the first year of the move. But on the other hand, by the end of the year, we were 50 percent larger than we had been before because even as we lost some of the people from the neighborhood, because this was now the equivalent of going out to dinner, dressing up a higher price, having to find parking or transportation. Um, but it opened us up to the west side, to New Jersey, to Long Island, to the commuter lines in a much broader way. And so the net effect was growth. But it certainly was a painful first year as we worked our way through that. And having lived through it with you, it was a difficult year because artistically, at least in the eyes of the critics, only two of the shows of the five that were done at City Center got any degree of respect and right. the others were pretty handily dismissed. Well, indeed. Uh, you know, we'll get to this later, I suppose. But the same thing turned out with the first two shows at the Freedman. By the third show, we had our sea legs and, you know, the sight unseen piece was a solid success. It's, it's not surprising in hindsight that in a year of upheaval where you're moving from one place to another, where the material was often selected for the place you're leaving as opposed to the place you were going to, certainly in the case at City Center, um, and where the focus is still on paying the bills of the move and all of the energy it takes to rethink who you are, it takes a little bit of time. And then, just as was the case then, success returns as you have the time to focus back on your primary purpose and being, namely producing plays. Was the move 
from City Center being your main stage to the Biltmore, now Friedman, being your main stage, was it as wrenching for the audience or was the audience moved more easily? I I think the audience moved easily because it had taken us a long time to find the space. But we had begun to talk – Certainly not only to our board but ultimately to our donors about the need for another space and because we weren't moving as far away, mind you, we're only a a short walk from city center. If you made the mistake of going to city center instead of the Biltmore, um, we could hold the curtain and you could get there in time. That would never have been the case between the Upper East Side and and – city center. So I think they were comfortable in the move. We, we did it with enough lead time for them to know what was going on. Having said that, it's still an enormously different experience producing on Broadway than it is on Broadway. And we were still finishing the building even as we were trying to get started with the with the opening of the season. Let me ask you about the whole Broadway aspect of it because as you said, MTC was no stranger to Broadway transfers. There had been in the early years – Ain't Misbehaving, Crimes of the Heart, Mass, Mass Appeal, appeal you know, very early on, then things like Loot. So shows had gone to Broadway. You, I think, only once self-produced directly on Broadway, which was small family business. Right. Um, but many shows had transferred and even more recently, shows like Doubt and Proof you know, had gone on to Broadway. What was the need to have – your own Broadway house versus when a show warranted it. Moving. Well, I go back to what I said a few minutes ago, which is, you know, if you look at the 10, even 20 largest Lort theaters in America, their auditoriums are all 800 or 1,000 seats. There's no one in that group with a 300-seat theater as its largest venue. So, this is getting very technical, but we were getting to a point where the percentage of the budget that ha- w- could be paid for by ticket sales was getting smaller and smaller. Hmm. And we didn't want to be dependent on transfers as kind of a bailout of what would become a systemic problem. We wanted to have a house that was large enough for the growing audience that MTC had for the work. That was the primary driver. In addition, I felt and ultimately others did as well that the quality of work that Lynn and the artists were doing was as meritorious as anything across the street in the Broadway venues. And so you know, bringing the kind of recognition to the work that that did became important for writers and artists who had grown up with us in smaller venues but were beginning to see their own work produced um, in Broadway-sized theaters. Do you think that when you produce a show now on Broadway, because there are so many connotations to that, that there is a different set of expectations than what – let's leave the critics out of it. The audience expects you to put on stage. I think so. I mean I think that's a fair – I think that's a fair statement. now, there's a wide range of what that expectation can be shaped to be. But there's no question that when an audience is coming to Broadway, they have an expectation of a finished production. There's no question that even though there are many adventurous people outgoing off Broadway, that we have a significantly larger uh, out-of-town presence even in previews 
in our Broadway venue than we do in our off-Broadway venues. And certainly, um, at the same time we were starting to plan for this, let alone by the time we implemented it, there is a much greater emphasis on single ticket sales than there is on subscription in America today. Right. Well, I was going to say, and you so, mentioned Danny Newman. Right. As you've moved into a larger house, subscription loyalty has has waned everywhere. Right. right. Or at least re- reconfigured itself. I mean, we still have many, many loyal subscribers, but, but it, you're absolutely right. The percentage of the house is very different than it was when we were in a much smaller venue at the height of the subscription movement. We now have people we would call multi-buyers who are the equivalent of subscribers. They're coming to MTC more than once in a season, but they're organizing how they do it in a different kind of way. So when you take all of those things together and they walk in the door, you know, many of the single ticket buyers aren't drawing perforce a distinction between walking into the Friedman Theater or walking into a commercial Broadway venue. The subscribers and the patrons, I think it's a different story. Um, we send an electronic letter to those customers the week before they come from Lynn explaining what they're going to see, why it was chosen. We surround them with a lot of collateral materials to to put that work in context. And we try now in the world of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and websites to do as much of that as we can for the single ticket buyer as well. But there's no question there is a different expectation from Broadway than there is from off. It's interesting when you talk about the preparation. Beth Marvel was in your chair last week and we were talking about Top Girls, mm-hmm. which was, to my mind, a fabulous production. I saw it twice. Right. Um, but it's always a challenging play. But in a Broadway setting, in in a commercial equivalent setting right. because of what people think of Broadway as – it clearly was a challenge to people who are coming in to see it and and both times I saw it, people didn't necessarily know what to make of it. Is that a challenge when you want to do work of that caliber and complexity but have the very thing you wanted, so many seats you have to fill? Yes, absolutely. But on the other hand, more people saw Top Girls – than probably saw most of a season in the old days at City Center. So you're balancing, you know, how many people you can impact with the work versus the pressures. I, I think one mistake we made, and I'll take this one on me, but the, the artist didn't want to reveal too much before the audience experienced the work. And so in previews, we didn't create a lot of materials to kind of explain the thought process of the play. And for those who haven't seen it in your listenership, this is a play in which the first act is very abstract and the second act begins with a set of characters that aren't even in the first act. So it's not until you get to the third act that you really put all the pieces together. And after we realized that some people were having more difficulty than others. Um, We did create some collateral material later in the run and I think it helped. And lesson learned, you just have to, you know, uh, make sure that that kind of information is available to customers if they want it right from the beginning. Yeah, and I didn't mean to pick on it. I just no, was, right. was fascinated it's, by it, how that how that happened. Let me ask you another question because it's something <laughs> that I hear sometimes firsthand. I read about there's 
certainly some in the commercial theater producing community who are, depending on when you catch them, willing to voice some resentment about the presence of the not-for-profit theaters on Broadway, that you and Roundabout and Lincoln Center have the opportunity to do work and not pay as much and get it on and be competing in the same sphere as they are. What's your response to that? Because I'm sure you've heard it. Sure, of course. I I think – you know, on some level, this is really nonsense. Well, first of all, the awards are supposed to be about excellence, not uh, about economics. Um, and I should say, I'm not holding mm-hmm. something for you to read when you say that. But, but secondly, I would say that everyone in these, you know, in these competitions has an unfair advantage, if that's what you want to call it. And those aren't my words; they're these words in the air. To some measure, you know, there are independent producers with access to capital that allow them to do things that, you know, as we're struggling to fundraise, we don't have the ability to do. There are wholly owned corporate entities that have the ability to work in multiple venues that we don't have. There are abilities to pay star salaries to some and attract people and make it really worth their while to come and do a work. So I think – Someone other than me said that you know one of the great things about Broadway is it's a kind of marketplace. Maybe Michael – I'm badly paraphrasing Michael David or something. But that it's a marketplace that has an opportunity for whoever wants to present themselves. And one of the great things for the audience is that that now represents a wide variety of both entertainment and art form. In the same way, I think there's a wide variety of financial structures in the way these things are being organized. And secondly, I guess I'd say that, you know, much, not all, but much of the work, certainly in terms of plays that's being produced commercially, is being developed in the nonprofit sector, if not here, then in the UK, uh, where we still have, you know, substantial state subsidy, even though they're, they're reducing it at the moment. So I think, you know, people are entitled to how they feel. But I think on balance, we've been good citizens in this community and we bring other opportunities for both artists and audiences. Well, I think it's worth noting that something that most people don't realize, which is that in the average Broadway season, there are 35 to 40 new productions in total. Um, It varies little off of that from year to year. Uh, eight or nine of those productions in any given year, so close to a quarter of them, are done by the not-for-profit producers who have Broadway houses. The What Broadway is, the breadth of what Broadway is, would be radically different without the three not-for-profit producers and possibly very shortly a fourth, fourth um, right. if Second Stage right, right. Uh, completes its work with the Helen Hayes. Having said that, I think there's no – I don't in any way mean to apply animosity in the other direction because I think even now as we, as we showed uh, for the first time this year with Time Stands Still, there's a role to move material from one of these not-for-profits into – longer commercial runs. There's the ability for us to sit on the street side by side with productions that are being presented uh, commercially, which I say again often have been developed in in other forums. 
Um, and so I think the collective creates a really intricate and interesting tapestry that wouldn't be there if we weren't there. Well, let me ask you about uh, the issue that now so many of the not-for-profits, whether they are off-Broadway or on-Broadway working here in New York, often have producing partners and we see names above the title of people usually associated as commercial producers when a show is being done in a not-for-profit venue. Rocco Landisman in some comments a few weeks ago questioned whether commercial theater and not-for-profit theater has grown too close. What's your perspective on the relationship between the two? I think I think there's a healthy symbiosis and that we actually need each other. If we had a national endowment with the ability to give 60 or 80 percent of budgets the way the UK did and still will even after these cuts, we might have that conversation. But in a world in which the NEA can maybe represent 1 percent of the budgets, the commercial theater depends enormously on the not-for-profit theater to support and develop artists and and art and the not-for-profit theater depends on the venture capital of the commercial world to produce larger works that we couldn't necessarily do on our own and to provide the possibility of transfer which allows the artist to believe that their work is going to both be you know, more highly compensated and, and reach a wider audience after it's had a, a presentation in one of these smaller venues. So uh, I think there's no question but that we are one theater organized in different fashions. Taking a completely different tack, to my recollection, twice in her time at MTC, Lynn has taken time off. One was to essentially take a year to have a child and the other was a sabbatical she took just a few years ago. Have you taken a year off? Is that an opportunity you want I haven't um, at this point and certainly I would think about it in the future. As I said before, I've been able to continue to do things differently from year to year. What I do do is I teach and while that's not the same as taking a year off, I've been committed to teaching all the way back to that new repertory project in Rhode Island. When we were on 73rd Street, I was teaching at Marymount Manhattan College. Later, I moved to adjunct faculty status in the graduate program at Columbia. Um, I, I hold that position now and hold a, a similar one, uh, which I'm able to do less frequently at Yale and New Haven. And I continue to do some sort of informal consulting and helping on the side for some of my colleagues who started at MTC and are now off on their own. So th there are ways, I think, to shift your focus a little bit in a way that not only keeps you sane yourself but helps bring renewed insight maybe when you come back to your work at MTC. You've talked about that there's always new challenges. So that's how you've sustained 35 years. But certainly completing the the Freedman, getting that really up and, and running and secure, um, the desire to reinstate stage two – 
what do you see as your next challenges? What's going to keep you interested aside from these the, the teaching opportunity and, and the helping out others? Well, I think for one, we don't have stage two yet back and that needs to happen. We need to be able to raise more funds to you know, increase – Everything we're already doing in support of, of artists, you know, expand commissioning programs. I would love to be able to find ways to get the plays to tour more than they are now. You know, we had great success for a time with Proof and Allergist and Doubt doing national tours. And yet it seems since then that it's been very difficult for plays to do that. So often the plays we do are widely produced in the regional theaters later. But that's different from having the work that's originally created seen by wide numbers of people outside of New York. And I think, you know, we have to continue to explore ways to look at broadcasting and, and whether there isn't a way to renew the hopes that Joe Papp had years ago to bring more theater to the screen in, in one form or another, whether that's television or streaming webcasts or, or something that hasn't even been invented yet. I want to double back. Why is the touring important? Because as you say, you have produced so many shows that become the staples of regional theater for the next two, three, four years after your successes with them. Why is it important that your productions go out and be seen? Well, it's a couple of things. One is an economic importance. The, the cost of mounting a play for only 13 weeks is extraordinary and to the extent that it can be amortized over a much longer period of time, then it allows the institution uh, a healthier um, return on its capital to put back into supporting stuff at the – let's say at the other end of the spectrum, the stage two kind of end of the spectrum. And secondly, I think it's important because sometimes, not always, these productions are extraordinary and a way that ought to be seen by others so that when you got to have – Cherry Jones in doubt across the country. That's a very unique experience. When we brought Laura Linney and her colleagues back to the court theater in Time Stand Still, that's a very different experience from multiple productions of the play, many of which will be extraordinary. True, but you know, you mentioned Cherry going out with doubt. That was something that is almost unheard of in this day and age. It was common in the 40s and 50s sure. that a star would play a season in New York and then go and play a season right. on the road with the very same play. That Cherry was willing to do it in all of these other cities was was particularly remarkable. Do you and think – And Valerie Harper, the same in okay. Tale of the Allergist's Wife. I okay. Mean, while she took over from Linda, she had right. been playing it in New York and then was willing to do it for a year on the road too. Do you think the economics for the artists themselves permit them to do that the way they once did? I'm sure the answer is probably not and that's why it's not happening right now. But that doesn't – you asked what are challenges that, that ought to be re-looked at and I, I see it as a – challenge that ought to be thought about at least and re-looked at. I don't pretend to have the answers hmm. right now. 
So anything else on the horizon? We're going to get stage two reopened. We're going to get some shows on well, tour. Well, I think I think new things. You know, th- there's a great energy in Mandy Greenfield's now been appointed artistic producer with specific charge to city center. That's a next generation of artistic leadership. Flory Siri, who's our general manager, has been doing a lot with me on things. So, you know, I'm excited by the energy of that. I'm excited by new writers like Bo Willimon and by the Whipping Man now with Matthew Lopez. So in addition to the Terrence McNally's and the Donald Margulies's and the David Lindsay Bears, I think what continues to interest is, you know, what are the next voices and what form are they going to choose to tell their stories in? Because in the end, what we're about is telling stories, but there are a host of new ways to tell them. And I think we have a lot to learn from the people that are coming up behind us. I think those sound like good words to end on. We've talked a lot about business and economics, but it is still about the shows and the artists. Without question. So I will say, Barry Grove, thank you for being our guest today on Downstage Center. Howard, thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded at the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.